Last time on Star Trek and the Jews. Heidi, I'm so excited to welcome you to Star Trek and the Jews. Thank you. We're coming with every available starship to assist, Captain. But the closest help is six days away. So we read two stories about Captain David Gold, one of the very few Jewish characters in Star Trek. If we can generate a concentrated burst of power at that same frequency distribution, how do we do that? The main deflector dish. So overall, I thought this story was really entertaining. The idea of a Klingon Jewish wedding is just a ton of fun. And I think it really works because of those parallels. Like you can really see the combination. of Borg. From this time forward, you will service us. Mr. Worf, fire. And now, the conclusion. Hello, and welcome to Star Trek and the Jews, the monthly podcast that uses Star Trek to boldly explore the worlds of Jews and Judaism. This is part two of our deep dive into Captain David Gold. Just a heads up, Keith the Candido shows up halfway through the episode. Keith is an author, editor, blogger, podcaster, musician, and lifelong Star Trek fan. In addition to original genre works, Keith has written tie-ins for Trek, Doctor Who, Buffy, and Spider-Man. Without further ado, here's Josh's interview with Glenn Hellman, Aaron Rosenberg, and Keith the Candido. Glenn Hellman is a pioneer in electronic publishing. In addition to his many original sci-fi works, Glenn's written for Star Trek, X-Men, and Farscape. He's the subject of the 2018 sci-fi anthology, They Keep Killing Glenn, a collection of 22 short stories, many written by Star Trek alum, and in all of which Glenn is killed. Uh, Glenn works for Comic Mix and blogs at glennhellman.com and is part of Crazy 8 Press. Pleasure to be here. Aaron Rosenberg is a author and game designer. He's written tie-in novels for Star Trek, World of Warcraft, and Stargate, and is the author of the original sci-fi comedy series, Duck Bob. Aaron has written children's stories and educational books and is a prolific writer of RPG books. Aaron is also a part of Crazy 8 Press. Aaron and Glenn, welcome to Star Trek and the Jews. Thank you. Wonderful to be here. Yeah. Nice to meet you. I've got to say, my usual co-host, Chava, she's a newer fan of Star Trek. A lot of our guests skew more towards the casual fan. I am definitely not used to being outgunned by Trekkies, but I feel pretty outgunned here today. If it makes you feel any better, I feel outgunned by Judaism here. So I'm, you know, I feel perfectly outgunned on that. Why don't you tell me about yourselves, about how you first came to Star Trek and how you came to write for Star Trek? I first came to Star Trek, um, well, I mean, like most people of my age and, and location, watching reruns on Channel 11 <laughs> in the early 70s. It was just something I never really got out of. Eventually, I found work um, in the Star Trek office because I was hanging around with different science fiction writers and comic book writers and stuff like that. And I had gotten brought in uh, to help out with building the, the Star Trek Omnipedia, which was the CD-ROM mm. version of the encyclopedia, which entailed being able to find 
video clips and images and having a good solid working knowledge of Star Trek to be able to hunt down and track all of this information. And then when they started working on a new Star Trek series, which was designed to be done on a monthly basis, uh, the Starfleet Corps of Engineers, I said, you know what, let me try pitching one of the stories to, you know, in there and see if I can play in this world. Um, having already done, you know, little bits here and there with little bits of Star Trek continuity where things in the Star Trek captain's chair or things like that. Sure, why not? Let's have some fun with this. And that's how I got started in this in Star Trek. And it's never really ended from there. (laughs) How about you, Aaron? How did you get into this? Um, Yeah, I mean, I started, you know, with Star Trek when I was a kid watching the show like Glenn did. I remember being in elementary school and having a friend a block away whose dad built him an Enterprise bridge out of cardboard or cardboard boxes so we would play you know star trek crew like all the time got back into it when like the motion pictures started coming out and then of course when i was starting college it was right when this brand new series next generation was coming out so all of my friends and i would gather after dinner every day every night in the dorms every week you know and uh, watch the next episode you know i was writing uh, i was writing role-playing games i moved to new york and a friend of mine who I knew from uh, from the University of Kansas, because we both studied under James Gunn, um, was already up here and was an editor at Pocket. He was the one who introduced me to Glenn and a bunch of others. Because um, we had a, a lunch group. He invited me out to the lunch group, and I met everybody, uh, Glenn and Keith and a whole bunch of people. And um, we were, you know, we were talking about novels. And, you know, I kept trying to tell him, like, hey, you know, you should have me write a novel. And he kept saying, well, you know, write a novel first. And then, and then we'll see about having to write a Star Trek novel. And then this new series started. And I think it was Glenn who actually first mentioned it to me and said, hey, you know, this, they're doing a new series. And it's sort of alongside the major continuity. And it's called the Starfleet Corps of Engineers. And you can do all kinds of stories in it. And so I talked to, to John, who was our, our friend who was the editor of it. And he said, yeah, you want to pitch something for that? And by the time I, I pitched something, I think Keith had taken over by the time I can't remember if Keith took over by the time I pitched or certainly by the time I started writing my first one. I do realize I have to amend my answer a little bit because I actually ended up in Star Trek before I started writing for Star Trek. Through strange and bizarre circumstances, I ended up as a character not once but twice in two different Star Trek novels. Oh, is that? I got written into um, Peter David's Imzadi as a chief medical officer for the uh, NCC-1701F, basically because I had to drop something off at Peter to him because he was just taking over the writing for Aquaman as he was in the middle of writing Imzadi and he needed a character name and I didn't know about it until I actually read the book. I was like, that's one. And then um, I found myself in John Vorholt's novel, The Genesis Wave which is even stranger because I've never actually met John Vornhold. But it turns out that David Mack wrote part of the technical documents that ended up in the middle of this of describing mm-hmm. Genesis and doing all the since nobody writes techno babble like, like Dave Mack does. Can't remember because I'm in, I know that I'm in uh, Greg Cox's uh, Han novel, I think as an ambassador, probably, probably around the same time. Right, yeah. I should give you a little bit of explanation for, for those people who are not familiar with the Starfleet Corps of Engineers and give you a little bit of backstory. This was around 2000. And there was this new thing coming out called electronic publishing. And Microsoft had spent a ridiculous amount of money to try and push for their own e-reader software and things like that. They, they spent, they threw a hell of a lot of money at Paramount and Star Trek to come up with a new Star Trek series with the logical belief that 
people who are Star Trek fans are most likely to sit down and be these type of new electronic readers sort of things. They'll read stuff on computer screens. It's the future. So they came up with a series that was basically, you know, that was designed to appeal to those sorts of techie people. So they did an entire series that was at least theoretically based around the Starfleet Corps of Engineers. The idea being that these are the people who come in, not necessarily fighting the wars or fighting the battles that the Enterprise does, but the people who come in and now try to take things apart and make things work and keep them running. Now, Keith, <laughs> Keith's not here, we can put words in his mouth. Keith basically borrowed a lot of this and used a lot of this with the structure of MASH, where you had people who were not directly on the front lines, but were still important to the battle, important to the fight. And as a result, that was the sort of structure that you were dealing with. You were dealing with a bunch of professionals who were not necessarily professionals of war or professionals of diplomacy or anything, but in their own specific technical field, there was almost nobody better. And the way it had been designed was it was designed to be a monthly series where you would normally have Star Trek novels, which were basically self-contained episodes that you could read in any order that you could do anything else with. This was designed so that you would have a bunch of short novels where one would come out one a month with each novel about 15,000 words, 20,000 words or something like that. And doing an ongoing story that would get people in and, and work almost like an IV drip on morphine. <laughs> it was a, oh, great. I got to find out what happened to these characters. And so Keith put together a roster of writers that you could put together all in one room to work with. And then also put together and do an ongoing writer's room, but also then send them off and say, okay, you do your story here. Here's the, here's the thing you've pitched. Great. Do that story over here. And then weave the entire thing so that you would leave hooks for everybody else. And one of the nice things for us writing it was that because Starfleet Corps of Engineers was a new series, it was not taken from any of the TV shows or any of the movies, you know, it had all these ties and all these connections. So you're in the Star Trek universe, you get to play with all of these ships and all these races and all these people. You know, there there are occasional cameos wandering in from people that you would recognize from the shows and the movies. But we have all this freedom because, you know, often when you're doing a tie-in property, you're you're very much restricted in terms of what you can do. Um, you know, so I when I when I wrote Eureka, I had to write very much a Eureka TV episode each time that I wrote a Eureka novel. You know, this because it was a brand new ship with a brand new crew, you really had a lot more room to play, a lot more flexibility in the kinds of stories you could tell, a lot more flexibility in the kind of characters you bring in, and the sort of things you could do to some of those characters that you could not do on a TV show where you have an actor who's contracted, you know, for a certain number of episodes. And so, you know, you can't kill off a character. You can't bring in a new character. You don't have that kind of freedom. But on this, we did. Now, granted, the cast, the, the, the characters that we used, a number of them were ancillary characters from other places in the Star Trek universe, from Next Gen, from Deep Space Nine, from where Montgomery Scott is theoretically the person who founded the Starfleet Corps of Engineers, you know, after he gets unfrozen in time, you know, all sorts of stuff like that. But we get to use these characters in a way that you wouldn't normally get a chance to play with. You don't have you don't have actors talking back. You don't have lots of things. Um, but there, in some cases, there are historical pieces that you get to play around with and go, "Oh, so this person was here for this battle. Let's try and see what they were, you know, what they were like during this." In my case, the story that I ended up pitching, at least partially, was dealing with. Um, 
Dr. Elizabeth Lenz, who was the ship's, I don't want to say medical officer, she was a medical officer, but she was more of a coroner than she was a medical person just because of the nature of the business. And also because she was a little bit gun shy for reasons that we went into in one of the stories. But it's like, she was the person, she was the one person who beat out Julian Bashir in her graduating class. But if I hadn't mistaken a pre-ganglionic fiber. For a post-ganglionic nerve. And once it came out that Julian Bashir had been genetically engineered, the obvious response is anybody who can be a genetically engineered person must also be genetically engineered. So she went through a, you know, a crisis and we got to play with that for a while. There's this concept that comes from Jewish literature of like Midrash, sort of the, the tie-in media of the religious tradition. It's a mode of interpretation where, you know, you fill in the gaps with stories and legends in a, in a non-canonical way, if you will, where you're, you can play around with, uh, with the kinds of stories you want to tell. They don't get rigorously examined in the same way. And then usually to, you know, tell some parable, ethical, philosophical something. Um, so what, in what ways is, is tie-in kind of a freeing form? And, and maybe what, in what ways is it a restricting one? Hey, Keith. Keith, thanks for joining. Hi. Hi, Keith. Hi, Keith. Oh, and we just did a wonderful story telling how you created the Starfleet Corps of Engineers. <clears throat> um, <laughs> sort of. <laughs> as far as I'm saying that the stories that we're telling in tie-in are commentary on the on the the quote the other the quote real Star Trek stories is a little strange because we hate to tell you this, they're all made up. <laughs> they're all parables. They're all, you know, things that we're pointing at and going, you know, contrary to popular belief, we do not have, we do not have a little window open in front of our typewriters <laughs> or our, our computers where we're looking. You still use your typewriter? We told you about that. Um, but yes, an entire bit of the entire, of going through a transcript of just transcribing what we're seeing in the future. No, we're making all this up. I mean, all this stuff is parable and trying to, you know, and, and giving that sort of comment on the human condition. Mm-hmm. I mean, saying that this story is canon or isn't canon, I, we can get to some very long Oh, God, are we talking about the C word again? Yeah, yeah, we can get to some, a whole lot of long arguments <laughs> about this. And uh, it, I honestly don't get why people stress over what's real in a fictional construct. I'm with you there. <laughs> there have been how many different versions of Batman on screen over the last 20, 30 years? <laughs> Um, that are not compatible with each other. How many different versions of Sherlock Holmes? It doesn't matter whether what we're doing is considered canonical or not. It's it's fiction. Um, and as long as we're telling good stories, that's the part that matters. I think people do it for the exact same reason that, you know, someone comes in from outside, especially in places like New York, where there's noise and pollution and traffic and chaos and junk and trash, and they want their home to be neat and tidy yeah. and clean. Because fiction is a field where you can... You can essentially see the horizon. You can see both ends of it. So you can look at this and you can say, you know, Star Trek has a start and it has a current ending, not an ending, but you know, it has a point it's reached at this point. I can see all of it, which means that I can try to order it mm-hmm. and organize it. And I cannot do that in the real world. So I can do it here instead. And I think that's why people latch yeah. onto this sort of thing. It's a chance to make order out of something that they care about. In some cases, to make some of this stuff all fit together, we're writing pieces of stories that fill in some of the gaps that we sit down and go, oh, here's this bit over here, but this thing later over here, how do you get from here to there? 
yeah, that's half the fun of being a tie-in writer is you get to fill in the gaps that they can't do in TV and movies because they don't have the time, they don't have the budget, there's right. no way to shoot, you know, inside somebody's head. I mean, all kinds of things. You don't have to worry about actor availability yeah. when you're writing a tie-in. You don't have to worry about actor availability, yep, yeah, scale, right. you know, sets. I, I was able to team up Picard and Cisco in an ebook because it which is something they'd never be able to do on screen again, probably. And and you know, be or yeah. or you know, use 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 characters whose actors are dead, of which there are an increasingly large number at this point in Star Trek. We did a show a couple months ago. And it was with a Jewish museum and we were we were talking about race in the Jewish community and Black Lives Matters and trans issues and all this stuff. And the only negative feedback we got at the end of it was all caps. The novels are not canon. Why are you talking about those? <laughs> that's, that's your controversy I, here? Great, I'll take it. <laughs> I, and, and also it's because the novels have actually had Jews in them. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, I mean, if you list the Jewish characters in Star Trek, you're only going to be able to list characters in prose and, and I think in some comics also, but that's pretty much. Yeah, it's a short list. The fact that they've gone out of their way to not confirm that the Rojenkos are Jewish or not. Um, it's, it's right. One of those where you sit down and go, really? I mean, you know. <laughs> Oh, they're totally Jewish. They acted exactly like my my former in-laws who were Russian Jews. Right, and, um, and talking about, you know, or, and, and you got Theodore Bikel playing it. Come on, you know. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, you, you, know you, you, you weren't casting Danny DeVito here. You know, there's a... Well, Danny DeVito as worst father would be really interesting. So it's twins all over again. But one of, one of the reasons, and I don't know if you guys covered this before I got here, I we were very specifically when John Ordover and I were putting the Corps of Engineers together, we wanted the captain to, or at least a character, but, but preferably the captain to be Jewish. To accentuate the point, we made his wife a rabbi just so there was no doubt. Right. You know? And that was, and, and, and it was mainly just to say that yes, Jews did really survive into the 24th century, honest, as much as anything, because none of the other characters were, were overtly established as such. Although oddly, it didn't make a splash that there were Jews in the 24th century until Creative Couplings came out. Mm. Well, yes. Which is, which is, you know, and there it was more because of the, because of the intermarriage. I mean, you know, because of the fact that it's like, okay, it's one thing to say, okay, Jews made it this far. The fact that they're married, that there's now a, 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 you know, intermarriage, for some reason that tickled people's fancy. And I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm happy that it did, but it's, it's a weird thing to sit down and go, yeah, I mean, there had been 48 stories, there had been four years of stories before that came about with, you know, with Captain Gold and, and crew and so on and so forth. So, it's, you know, we knew Jews had been around. And, and yeah, and we featured his wife on any number of occasions. Yeah. yeah but the difference, the difference is that none of those stressed it. None, right. none of those stressed the element of his Judaism in the same way the creative couplings did. That's always one of the questions about Jews in general as, you know, are you looking at Jews as a social construct, as an ethnic construct, as a religious construct, you know, there, there are so many different ways to take it. And yeah, this was the yeah. first time where you really went, where for obvious reasons, we went hard into more, into more of the religious aspects. The, the way Creative Couplings as a story came about was kind of weird. <laughs> well, it actually started with uh, an earlier story that Ian Edgerton and Mike Collins wrote, where they just put in a throwaway thing about how one of Gold's granddaughters was dating a Klingon, which was just not meant to be anything, really. It was just something Ian and Mike threw into the story, and we ran with it. <laughs> and that was one of the fun things about, about Creative Couplings, too, is that 
So every, I think every month, basically, Keith would send all of us a Creative Coupling's Bible. The Corps of Engineers Bible. And basically, he would send us an update pretty much every month with what had happened. And so every month, we would get this update with what had happened in the latest stories and what was coming up in the next story, which was great because we, we could see mm. these characters evolving. So these little throwaway lines would get dropped in. And right. we'd be like, oh, by the way, one of Gold's granddaughters is dating a Klingon. So you have all of these story threads that are being added to and developed, and everybody gets a chance to see that and go, ooh, that'd be fun. I got dibs, you know, and that sort of thing, which is great. When we did the wedding, when we did the wedding ceremony, I stole a bit from the late great Lynn Thigpen. Um, Lynn Thigpen was an actress, you probably, I, I'm, I'm trying to think where you might know her from. If you ever saw the PBS series, Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? Oh, yeah. She, she was the chief. That was Lynn. She was one of those character actors who was in like everything at some point. And she was talking that basically one big event on the show, like a wedding, where you brought every cast member and every cast member had a chance to show up. And you could then set off all sorts, you could tie up a whole bunch of loose ends, a whole bunch of little character things, and set off a whole bunch of different paths where you were going, which was the part that I got to have fun with and say, okay, we've got a wedding ceremony coming up. The people who have the next 10 novels, what things do you want me to set up in here? Um, you know, who's, who's going to start dating who? Who's going to start, you know, who's going to have the little fling? Who's going to have a huge argument? Who's going to do, you know, all these little things that you could just sit down and, and throw in a wedding and it just adds to the verisimilitude of it. So that was, you know, so from a storytelling point of view, it's a great, it, it's, it's great literary device. It's a great thing to sit down in an ongoing series to have this thing where, okay, let's bring everybody together you know, mid-season finale, whatever you want to think of it as. <laughs> Sweeps week. We were doing that constantly. I mean, we were, we, were, we were always, you know, stuff, people would drop something in one story and then drop something in another story and somebody else would run with it. And, and that, was, that was part of the fun of doing the monthly series with, with a bunch of different writers who all had different ideas about things. Um, and the, the opportunity to do a Klingon, because they, they had been kind enough on Deep Space Nine to give us the Klingon wedding yeah. set. Which right. also is a... And, a, an episode that has a real Jewish vibe to it. <laughs> you know, pain sticks, hoppa, same thing. It's funny because we're telling the story of the, of, the, of, the, of the story backwards, but it's kind of weird that way. I think so, we're, so we're actually telling the story from right to left. It's, it's wonderful. Yeah, exactly. The wedding ceremony that we ended up performing, obviously we, still, we, we borrowed a lot from You're Cordially Invited, which was the Wharf Dax wedding, um, because right. that established a lot, a lot of things in the Klingon wedding ceremony. But then you got to the part of the Jewish wedding ceremony. And there, it's even stranger because originally Aaron was supposed to write that story. He was supposed to write that part of the story. I was supposed to write the other pieces. The way that the story had originally been constructed, I'd written one half of you know, this particular plot line. Aaron wrote the other half of the plot line. And we were going to swap. And you know, as we both wrote each other into corners, by the time we got to that point, we'd both written each other into such such ridiculous corners that we basically said, hey, you know what, maybe we should write our own way out of this. Sort of well, and, also, and also we both looked at each other basically at the end of book one and said, I'm having too much fun with my storyline to give it up. <laughs> yeah. And we both said, oh, well, if we're both having fun with our storylines, why don't we just keep it? Okay, sure, why not? It did lead to the very odd circumstance of me, who is a about as uh, Jewish as mayo on white bread. There's a reason why this is a shamrock here and not a star of David, okay? There's a, but so I found myself getting to write the, you know, a Klingon Jewish wedding ceremony. Not something I had particularly prepared for uh, and had much experience with. So we reached out to our friend, uh, the late, great 
Rabbi David Honingsberg, the two-fisted young rabbi, <laughs> country music playing rabbi who's <laughs> who's good with the kids, you know, and good with the and, and to get who, who is also, by the way, a science fiction writer and a game designer and a QR guy and uh, and a musician. He wasn't kidding about the, the musician and, part. And also the rabbi who married me. Oh so, wow! And yes, right. Yes, and would have would have been the rabbi who married me if he had lived long enough. We called up David and said, look, here's what we have here. We have to do a combination Klingon Jewish wedding ceremony. Here's what we know about the Klingon ceremony. You know Jewish wedding ceremonies. And I impressed upon him the fact that this had to be a legitimate Jewish wedding ceremony because this is Star Trek. Six months after this story came out, I was going to be reading a story. I knew it was just going to happen of somebody performing the wedding ceremony that we were writing here exact because quote, <laughs> that's the way it's supposed to happen. So I wanted to make sure that it was a legitimate Jewish wedding. Thank you, Rabbi, for making sure that it all worked. Um, although I think Aaron, you had also said, look, here are the elements that you have to have in here. Yeah, well, because I mean, because the funny thing was, you know, have, since David was my rabbi, um, you know, and my, my wife was not Jewish at the time. So um, when we met with him, David, we, David was already a good friend of ours, which is why we asked him to marry us. But, you know, when we met with him to prepare for our wedding, it was exactly that. It was exactly like in the story where, you know, David sort of sat down with us and said, OK, you know, here are the pieces that you have to have for it to be a legitimate Jewish wedding. Now, what are the pieces you want to have? What are the pieces that are important to you to have in addition to these pieces that are required? And then he said, okay, you know, here, here are the pieces that we have then. Let's work with these pieces. You know, and so it was, it was very much like, like exactly like it's written there. You know, it's okay, here, here, without the contention and without the phrases, but you know, <laughs> here, here are the lists and you know, here, here's what we have to do and here's what we want to do. And okay, let's put these together and make a, a meaningful ceremony. Star Trek in, in film and television, like famously stays so far away from religion. There's a line that, uh, that David Gold has in, in Creative Couplings, and you guys could tell me which one of you wrote it. There's no one faith, some have plenty, some have none, and regardless, it's up to each individual. Uh, we recognize the equality of all religions and welcome them all. In the case of our family, it's Judaism. Ask 10 other humans, you'd get 10 other answers. Great, diversity, no coercive religion. That sounds like Starfleet to me, but I'll bet there are a lot of Star Trek fans who are like, no, that is not my Star Trek. Religion is abolished in the 24th century. It is all gone. Um, do you get do you get pushback on that? And and where do you find the the balance in that? I mean, I I, don't I never got it. any. I never saw any pushback at any point yeah. from that at all. In fact, and what I got more of was people who were grateful to see it. That message, what Gold said, is about as Star Trek as you can mm -hmm. get. You know, the whole idea is. I mean, yes, Gene, Gene Roddenberry would have, if, if you put a gun to his head, would have said there's no religion on earth in the 24th century. But that doesn't mean there's no religion in the 24th century at all. We still, there are plenty of other cultures that did have religion. Right. Jorans. Yeah. Although even with the Jorans, you're saying, oh, how much is religion and how much is, oh, well, here are these strange events that are actually going on that, are, you know, we're, we're putting a story behind. Well, that's what religion is. Well, <laughs> Yes. I don't but, think the wormhole aliens ever tell Cisco to, to worship them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But you still, there's the whole idea is that people can, especially humans in the 24th century, are basically free to do 
what they want as long as they're not hurting anybody else. That also means, you know, freedom to worship or not. Yes, although in our story, if you're hurting each other consensually, that's a different discussion. But that's, you know, that's... Well, yes. <laughs> let's let's talk about that Klingon do yeah, yeah. You know, It's funny because... So there, there's an element to, you know, to writing fiction, especially tie-in fiction. As we've already said, I mean, it come, sometimes it comes down to filling in gaps, um, you know, to filling in things that happen. But it also comes down to things like, you know, if you ever watch the TV show 24, right, Jack Bauer goes 24 hours, never once does he go to the bathroom. Right. Ever. Or eat. You, you never see a bathroom on a starship. You never see, you know, certain, certain ships for a long period of time, you didn't even see a, a galley or a cafeteria. Nobody ate. Nobody slept. Nobody did anything. You're filling in not only the gaps character wise and story wise, but also life wise. And especially with a series like SCE, which is literally about the nuts and bolts. You know, mm-hmm. we were filling in all these things about people with real people. Like these are real people with real problems, with real situations. And that also means real religions. You know, it means you really do look at these aspects of life that you don't see in the TV and you don't see in the movies, you know, but you do get to see in the books because you have an opportunity to explore these and talk about these. And you know, that's an important factor. You know, it's, it's an important element. Whether, you know, it's, it's a religion they were raised with or religion they chose or religion they created or religion they stepped away from. It is part of who they are, you know, and we didn't ignore that. And I think that's really important, you know, to not ignore it. And for that matter, I mean, I, I've always pictured him. I mean, obviously I've pictured him as Jewish. I've written him as Jewish. I've never necessarily written him as a religious Jew, but it's certainly as a cultural Jew, as an ethnic Jew, as, and as somebody who is obviously married to a rabbi, he's he's obviously and seriously part of that culture. He has that, you know, that particular impact. With Gold, it's almost the difference between the issues of Jewish philosophy. I think that from Gold's point of view, you know, the philosophy works. There are lots of things about the philosophy that is perfect, you know, that are perfectly workable for him. It's what he grew up in. It's a philosophy he understands, philosophy that enriches him, and he hopes the people around him. He doesn't necessarily need the faith articles of it to sit down and say that I need the, you know I need this level of proof to sit down and, and go off and be a decent person to live the life of a wise man of a saint of a you know of a zakatim or whatever you know whatever it may happen to be I at least leave that ambiguous I, other people may have written other pieces on this sort of thing and I don't really you know not my point to sit down and come up with he, he also he also understands that Yiddish has the best profanity only, be, <laughs> only because he's only because it's Klingon is very rusty. Uh, <laughs> Yes, yes, there, there is that. Um, and one, one of the things I had, I established about his wife is that she is, she's also, uh, it was established, I forget by who, that she was a professor. That may have even been part of the Bible. This was yeah. 20 years ago. So, right. um, but, uh, but at the very least, one of the things I established that one of the things she teaches is a comparative culture, uh, cultural appreciation class. Right. And it's one of her most popular classes because, you know, and in a federation where you've got 150 planets as part of it, that's something that's going to be of interest to college students. One of the things that that both Rabbi Gilman and Captain Gold uh, think is important is the the joy that comes from diversity. Right. We also established that the, there's a lot of, of people who have married into the Gold extended family, which is yeah. huge, uh, who are who are from different cultures on Earth as well as aliens as well, and that and they're all welcomed into the house. And you know, when when one of my favorite uh, stories that I've written for the SCE was was breakdowns. 
which uh, took place prior to Creative Couplings, but had Cor uh, and, and Esther as part of it uh, when, when they were just, when they were just, they were still dating. Everybody's welcome in the house. Once, once you're part of the family, you're part of the family and, and everybody's there to support Gold, who had just been through a major uh, in, the, uh, in the story of Wildfire. And in, in typical Jewish fashion, what they do is they all get together, they talk and they eat. Yes. And, and they share a meal. And that's, that's, that's what brings Gold the piece that he hasn't been able to find since since what happened in Wildfire when he lost half his crew. Um, now, I will make one note about stere- diversity and stereotypes and stuff like that, and particularly for writing for Jewish stereotypes. I'm, I'm, I'm going to take a hit on this one. And it was specifically when one of, again, we talk about filling in gaps. And you had Gold's wife who stayed on Earth while... David Gold himself would, you know, would go across the galaxy for, you know, weeks or months at a time, never seeing his wife, you know, never seeing him in person, so on and so forth. And immediately part of the question comes up, why would you do this? Why is somebody spending the, you know, why is somebody who's got such a rich family life and everything else like that stay so far away from Earth? And so I kind of address that in the wedding scene um, where you meet his mother-in-law. I mention this because I came this close to cutting that. <laughs> if I remember correctly, you came close to cutting that scene because you thought I was you thought I was just being stereotypical and mean and horrible and and and, and then I said, no, based on a real person. <laughs> yeah. Based yeah. on a real mother based on a real in-law of, of mine. And yeah. And so they go, no, 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 really, honest. And it's like, yeah. So I will take, I'll take that hit. I'll take it. I, I will take that bit of going, oh, so you're not a real doctor. Yeah, no, all in there. Absolutely. It's just like, and, <laughs> and once you meet her, you can understand why, why David Gold spends a lot of time off planet. So. Well, let me push on that. So, you know, there's a, there's a choice made around what kind of Jews you show in that book, right? Which I, which I think is a authentic representation of a slice of the Jewish world sort of like like mid 20th century very New York professional Ashkenazi um, which is not inauthentic and Mm. and and yet it is like a it's it is this little bit of the Jewish world yeah do you think there's things you would have wanted to do differently if you were you know you've like the rest of us evolved over 20 years things you'd want to do differently with uh with the Jews in that story today? Yeah, I mean, I definitely would. Um, you know, well, it's been, uh, John, how many years has it been since we wrote it's, this? We, uh, we started the series in 2000, so it's been basically 15 to 20 years. Yeah, you know, so so in that, in that time, um, you know, just for myself, I mean, my wife and I, uh, you know, joined a synagogue. Um, you know, we, we have two kids. Once our kids were a certain age, we joined a synagogue. Um, I've been the vice president of the synagogue. I ran the Sunday school for four years. We, we attend services regularly. Both my kids have been bar bar mitzvah. So obviously I've had a lot more involvement in the Jewish community than I had basically at any point from after I had my bar mitzvah. That was in New Orleans. So I've spent a lot more time in the Jewish community, um, have a lot more friends in various aspects of that community than I, than I did when we wrote this. You know, so certainly, you know, at the time, I mean, you know, Glenn and I, Glenn and I work reasonably well together, um, you know, because we would each be writing our own thing. We, we sort of hashed out the story idea together, and then we would each write our own pieces. 
but we would bounce them off each other. We would send them back and forth and say, you know, what do you think of this? How's this look? You know, adjust here and there. Oh, you know, I think this is great, but what about this thing and things like that? You know, it's been a long time, obviously, but I'm sure that if I had seen anything that I felt was egregious, I would have said, okay, Glenn, like, come on, let's, let's not do that. You know, now I think going back, I would probably want to have more say in that side of things and say, okay, you know, that's not quite, but let's maybe do something a little more like this, you know, in part drawing from the experiences that I've had since and being able to say, okay, I do know someone like that, but I also know people like this. So maybe we can add some of that in a little more. I actually have been rereading a lot of the Corps of Engineers stories. I've I've been doing, um, since the apocalypse started last year, I've been doing a YouTube channel where I've been reading uh, my short fiction. And I've been actually reading, what I've been doing this year is is specifically reading my Corps of Engineers stories, uh, specifically the ones I wrote, but I've been reading through all of them. And I'm actually really happy with how well they've held up for the most part. You know, there there are some things I look back on it and wince a little bit, but nothing nothing too egregious. I think I think you know we we yeah. we did a good job of creating a nice little bunch of characters uh, mm-hmm. and and some fun situations dealing with you know specifically the first year after the Dominion War. You know, if we're talking about things from the SCE that you wrote the date, I may be the worst defender of the bunch, and even my bit doesn't doesn't come across nearly as badly as you as some people might. You're talking about the axe, right? right. Yeah, I yeah. yeah for various for various and sundry yeah. reasons, I was actually the first person in Star Trek to have something new come out post 9/11. Mm. I was the first person who had a place to make a comment about it. Being in New York at the time, and for that matter, with anthrax scares being, I mean. The thing about writing oaths is you're writing about a plague, you know, a plague hitting a planet. At the same time that story is going on, literally the building that shares an underground complex with Simon and Schuster, the publisher's headquarters, is getting mailed anthrax. On the one hand, it's the easiest research I've ever had to do for a book because you know all the information I needed to know was showing up and the page three of every newspaper every day you fucking read it. But it was and also, you know, dealing dealing with a pandemic is something that has actually come around again and been more timely now. So, <laughs> yeah. um, all I was trying to do was tell a story and occasionally tell a few jokes along the way, do, put a, put some humorous spins on things. Most importantly, set up hooks for the next people down the line. Keith, when I was probably fifteen years old, I read Articles of the Federation, and in one sitting, I picked it up in the library and just could not put it down. I'm sorry, and... when you were fifteen, you said. Yeah, just ignore that. Part. Okay, just, just <laughs> I, if you can ignore it, I can I've already it. forgotten he said that. So keep in mind that was 15 years ago. So yeah, 16 years ago. Yeah, that that piece that you spoke about before of like creating real life in it, I I think is something that that is lacking in in Star Trek that is not on the page. It can be. I mean, you, you get it every once in a while. Sometimes it's little things like, you know, Riker playing the trombone or Picard riding a horse, Tilly and, and, and Stamets singing David Bowie songs. But um, part of the problem is just the, the, the format of television. Mm-hmm. You know, you've only got 42 minutes or so to tell your story, that you, which means you've got to focus on the story. And, and, a lot, and the type of stuff that, that's often the first to get cut is those little grace notes and those little bits of, of normal life. In prose, we've got more storytelling space. Yeah, and and that it's just it's just a benefit of, of the medium and different types of storytelling space. There are some stories that you can yeah. do in prose that are next to impossible to do in a comic book or to do on a TV screen or to do as an audio. I mean, you know. All right. So uh, before we wrap up, I want to ask you guys something. So uh, CBS calls you up tomorrow and says we're 
against all odds making the David Gold series. <laughs> who's your uh, who? Who's your suggested cast for uh, for Captain David Gold? Sadly, Harry Morgan is dead. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, honestly, no, seriously. The the what I told every single writer was when you're writing Gold, it's Colonel Potter from Mash, only Jewish. That's that's who he was. I mean, I remember there, there, there's there's a wonderful bit. And in MASH, which I always thought was like the quintessential Potter moment when um, when Colonel Flagg shows up and uh, and he makes a comment. And he says, you know, make, I need a medical decision now. The last CEO they had near couldn't make a decision without two weeks notice. And Potter just basically smacks him down completely. You know, I'm, I'm not fond of personal abuse, Colonel. I was in this man's army when the only thumb you were worried about was the one in your mouth. And that was like the perfect, the perfect Colonel Potter line. And that is exactly the sort of thing David Gold would say to somebody who was giving him a hard time. Yeah. And it needs somebody who can, who can, you know, basically threaten with authority, but still be incredibly friendly at the same time. This was always one of the weird things about, about SCE. And it was one of the things I, I commented to Keith about, which is that, I mean, using the analogy of Colonel Potter for MASH, I mean, Colonel Potter in MASH, at least Colonel Potter was an experienced surgeon. He knew what the hell he was talking about. He could speak to the uh, he could speak to Hawkeye and he could speak to BJ and others as medical peers. David Gold has enough science to get by, mm. but he's not. Yeah, but he. The thing is, what what the the aspect of Potter that I that I wanted. Right. to emphasize and that I thought was important is somebody who understands that what he has working for him are not, in this case, regular Starfleet, that these are specialists in their field who are very good at what they do, but who are not standard Starfleet issue. They're not your spit and polish Starfleet officers. And he yeah. knows that and recognizes it and knows how to wrangle them and kick them back in bounds when necessary. That's the aspect of Potter's personality. Absolutely. And, I, and I always agree with that part yeah. of the personality, but every once in a while, and, and this is the part that I brought up in Oaths, there were occasionally going to be circumstances where gold was going to be so far out of his depth, technically, that he had to rely on what other people were telling him. But that's every starship captain's had to do that. You think Kirk understood half of what Spock was saying? Yeah. You know, um, but Kirk still had to be the one to make the decision. Right. You know, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the job that's, of every that's, commanding that's, officer. Right. You, you, get good, yeah. you get good information from people that you trust, and then you act competently on it. And that's something yeah. gold was very good at. Thank you guys so much for joining tonight. Uh, before we go, maybe uh, you could tell us a little bit about something uh, either you've got on the go right now or a recent project you uh, want to let our listeners know about. Aaron? Uh, most recent project is um, I just recently finished book four of an epic fantasy series I'm writing called The Relicant Chronicles, which is out with Falstaff Books. Uh, it's basically Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon meets Game of Thrones. Mm. Uh, book four, which is called Bones at Rest, will be out. Uh, I believe it's slated for September at this point. Nice. Keith, go ahead. Uh, I've got my, my latest uh, novella that's uh, being released uh, in June of 2021 is uh, called uh, All the Way House. It's part of the Sistema Paradoxa series. I think Aaron's doing a piece for that as yeah, well. Mine's already um, out. Mine came out in April. <laughs> right. Um, these, are, these are a series of novellas that are all about different cryptids. Uh, various various monsters from folklore. Uh, mine is generally about the Jersey Devil, as well as a few other cryptids I snuck in there. Um, but it's it is the the secret origin of the Jersey Devil, with a story that takes place in 2020, in 1909, and in 1735. Wow, cool, cool. Yeah, so that was. And I got and I'm also got a bunch of other stuff happening. Um, I'm still writing for Tor.com, including uh, Star Trek Voyager rewatch, 
and reviewing new episodes of the new Secret Hideout shows as they come out on Paramount+. Plus. I'm not sure what I've got coming out that I can point to with any reliable schedule. Um, I've got Comic Mix has uh, a few books that are coming out for uh, Halloween, the latest of the uh, reprints that we've been doing of the Claypool comics, um, Deadbeats, Soul Searches and Company, and the other Fear City books that are out. I'm working on, right now on the Masterworks edition of John Sable Freelance. Uh, we are doing an oversized version, you know, uh, shooting from, in many cases, uh, original film and then recoloring mm. the entire thing, re, you know, basically remastering the entire work. Uh, which has been a fascinating process. And right now, the one Star Trek thing that's, or Star Trek adjacent thing that I, is still going on and nearly going on its five-year anniversary of its five-year mission is this book, which is still working its way through the courts right now. And as I said, come around August. When you want to say the, uh, the title, because I think we'll be audio only. <laughs> oh, the title will be, Oh, the Places You'll Boldly Go, which has been going through a... Um, has been going through the courts now for going on almost five years. If this thing lasts longer than the original Star Trek mission, I'm going to be flabbergasted. <laughs> well, if yeah, I was going to say if it's audio, no, I'm not going to. I I could recite what what this is, but no. Um, the lawsuit on this one is going to be fascinating. And um, since you mentioned Toronto, uh, features the work of the great Toronto artist Ty Templeton who is much and, and greatly beloved. And um, well, we hope he gets well soon, actually. Uh, he's, he's currently under the weather. Mm. So. Well, thank you guys so much. It's been great to chat with you. Uh, we really appreciate your time. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Thank this was fun. Thank you for listening to Star Trek and the Jews. Thank you again to Glenn Howman, Aaron Rosenberg, and Keith the Candido. Your Hebrew school homework is the season two DS9 episode, Sanctuary. See you next month. <laughs>